Well, let's get into the Bible study for tonight. We may be able to cover both chapters 33 and 34. These two chapters uh, highlight something we've already seen as we've been approaching this with the family that, that uh, descended from Abraham, Isaac, now Jacob, Jacob and Esau. Uh, the dysfunction in this family, it's hard to believe that this, this was the, the taproot of God's chosen people, but the things we see in these two chapters uh, really look a lot like modern day in some respects. And so let's pick it up. Uh, now, just remember last time, uh, Jacob and his family, his wives, his concubines, his children, they're all on their way. They're on the move back to the promised land. The Lord had called Jacob to now come back into the land and he's heading in that direction and he's getting ready for this encounter that he's going to have with his brother Esau, who he's not seen now. By this time, it's been about 21 years since he's seen Esau. Uh, the last time that he knew of his brother, his brother had pledged to kill him as soon as their parents were gone. And so he knows that uh, an encounter with Esau is in his future. And we are about to reach that point where the two brothers come together. So we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 33. And we read there, now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. Now, he already had the warning from the guys that he sent out ahead of the party to meet up with Esau's people, and, and the report they brought back is Esau's got 400 men with him. And this, of course, caused great consternation with, with Jacob, because, again, he's thinking, well, my, my brother is ready to get his, his revenge on me, and it's not going to be pretty. And so, you know, he sees Esau approaching with this, this uh, company of 400 men, and I'm sure he's shaking in his boots. And he said, we read there, so he divided, this is Jacob, divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Uh, so we see he's making careful preparations as he's about to meet his brother. And, and we shouldn't think that because he's making preparations that somehow that indicates that he wasn't trusting the Lord. Because often when the Lord expresses his will to us or we get a word of knowledge that the Lord wants us to take a particular direction in our lives... It's not evidence that we don't trust him if we make practical uh, preparations for that. God's given us a brain to think with. He's given us judgment. He's given us life experience. And these things should be brought to bear no matter what we're doing. And, and especially when we're doing something in furtherance of the Lord's will for our lives. He expects us to use our faculties. Jacob was doing that. But it's quite clear that Jacob has no, no qualms about showing the priorities that he, that he has for his family. The most precious portion of his family was Rachel and, his, and her son Joseph. And so, or I'm sorry, yeah, her son uh, Joseph. So he, he keeps them last and closest to him, maybe furthest away from the danger. Uh, the concubines are out front and then Leah and her children and then, um, and then Rachel and Joseph last. But then we read in verse 3 that Jacob demonstrates his submission before his brother. First of all, he crosses before his family. So he puts himself out in front of his immediate family. We see there in verse 3. And then he bows himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Now this would be a sign of submission. 
And it, it would be something that um, maybe Esau doesn't even expect because he knows that through trickery and deceit, Jacob was the one that ultimately got uh, the father's blessing, uh, the blessing that would normally go to the firstborn, but Jacob ended up with it. And so I'm sure as these brothers now who haven't seen each other in 20 years, they're coming together. They don't quite know what to expect for each to the other. And so Jacob, now remember in the previous chapter, Jacob had wrestled with God, hadn't he? And Jacob ultimately came out of that so-called struggle being submitted to God. And when we submit to God, typically it changes us. And one of the things that should be most evident in any of our lives, no matter what, what direction you're coming at as you come into submission to the Lord, is it should be a humbling experience. Again, to me, the, the greatest indication that somebody has truly come to faith is, is evidenced in what they know now about themselves and what they know now about Jesus Christ. And the thing we should know about ourselves, and this is something that is diametrically opposed to what the world and the culture teaches. The world and the culture teaches as a basic perspective that humanity is basically good. And because we're basically good, we are the repositories of truth. We, we can make our own way. We have the capacity to ultimately make the world a better place. And I don't mean just technologically. I mean morally. And the perspective of somebody who understands the scriptures is quite the opposite. We understand the, the basic depravity of, human, of the human race that has been occasioned by the sin nature that we inherited from the original parents who rebelled against God. And this is why we are so beholden to God. This is why we talk about salvation. Why do I need to be saved? See, the world doesn't understand why they need to be saved because they don't understand the depravity that we're born into. It's only when you understand that that you realize, I need a savior. This was one of the principal reasons why God gave the Jews the law was, okay, here's the righteous standard of God. Try that out. <laughs> and, and the book of Galatians and other places in the scripture tells us the purpose of the law was, was to give us the knowledge of sin. What it didn't have, it was weak because it didn't have the power to remediate. It couldn't change us in the sense of changing our hearts, but it could show us our desperate need for the Savior. And this is why Jesus then came to fulfill the law and in his fulfillment of the law, he becomes the ensign of a new covenant, where now it's God will do, God will do, and we trust him, right? And so Jacob, to get back to our narrative here, Jacob, he's now in a posture of submission before his brother. And he doesn't know what to expect, but we see what ultimately happens in verse 4. Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. So obviously Esau likewise has gone through some kind of profound change. I wouldn't necessarily attribute it to him, uh, you know, worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the Lord has prospered him. The Lord said that he was going to prosper these people, and Esau is part of this family, and I believe that Esau was indeed touched by the Lord, uh, in, in very meaningful ways. First of all, he became a very wealthy man himself. But the Lord has changed his heart concerning his brother because far from wanting to kill him, he's now embracing him as a long-lost loved one. And they wept. They, this was a great thing that they, they actually wept and, 
and, and kissed and made up, so to speak. And he lifted his eyes and he saw the women and the children and said, who are these with you? So he said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. And Jacob is right to know that, that children are, are a gift from the Lord. It's amazing how things have changed in our life. Uh, I had uh, the unfortunate uh, experience of listening uh, to a, a description of a man that some of you may know about named Peter Singer, who I, I think he's out at Stanford. Um, he's somebody who's very influential in the, in the, in the uh, area of the merger of biology and ethics. And this man, if he had his way, um, parents would be able to put to death newborn children, children up to age two. You know, he doesn't see them as a person. And when you don't see somebody as a person, then their life doesn't matter. These, all of our children, every baby who's conceived, as Psalm 139 would tell us, they're, they're, the Lord knew them from before they were even in the womb. And, and Jacob says, these are the children whom God graciously has given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, and they and their children, and bowed down. Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. So all of Jacob's clan is bowing before Esau. And again, this is, this is a way of showing submission and, and deference. Then Esau said, what do you mean by all this company which I met? Now he's referring to these waves of livestock that, that Jacob had previously sent ahead of the group as gifts. So all of a sudden there'd be some shepherds and with them is 50 camels or whatever. And Esau is saying, what are these about? Is your brother Jacob? He's up the road and he's sending this as a gift. And then sheep would be coming and goats would be coming. And so now Esau is asking about that. He says, what do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I have seen the face of God and you were pleased with me. Now, I don't think Jacob necessarily is trying to attribute deity to Esau. When he says that in, by seeing Esau's face and the way in which they met up, he's seen the face of God. I think what he's really describing is that he could see the hand of God in this reunion. That God has intermediated between he and his brother. And rather than it being this contentious and maybe even lethal encounter, it's instead it's this wonderful love feast. And, and so he sees the face of God in the midst of it. And, and uh, he says, please, this is Jacob still imploring his brother, please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt, dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he, Esau, took it. Now understand why, um, why Jacob would be so insistent. Because there's a whole protocol, right, uh, to things like picking up the check, uh, like, uh, you know, giving something or getting, receiving something. Uh, you know, sometimes there's other motives involved. Okay, here, let me get that. No, I'll get, oh, all right. You know, it's like, boy, that happened real fast. Those kind of things. Um, but <laughs> um, in their culture, one would never receive a gift from an enemy. If an enemy offered you a gift, you'd never receive it. You would only receive a gift from a friend. So it's important for Jacob to have the assurance that here is my gift, 
And my brother's going to receive it because he now sees me as a, as a friend, as a loved one. In other words, things are put back together. Notice they don't, they don't pull over to the side to let's hash out what happened 20 years ago. And I think, you know, a lot is said about it, and I think maybe too much attention is paid to it, that whenever you have problems that have troubled you in your life, you need to go back, you need to retell them all, you need to dissect them, you need to have psychotherapy about them, you need to share it with everybody, you need to go to a, a, a group think, a support group, so that you can spill out all the terrible things that happened to you. Look, I'm no psychiatrist and I'm no psychologist. So I don't mean to, to speak knowledgeably about what's an effective way for people to get over a problem. But I am a pastor. And I have seen the power of the Holy Spirit to heal hearts. And he doesn't usually do it by causing you to look back. He causes you to go forward to the upward call of Jesus Christ. Paul, think about the Apostle Paul. His career was killing and jailing Christians before he came to the Lord. You don't see him seeking psychotherapy, going to focus groups, spilling his guts about it all. I'm sure he had regrets about it. But he realized he wasn't going to be much use to the Lord if he was wallowing in all of the wrongs of his past, the people who wronged him, the people that he wronged. It's not to say that we shouldn't have contrition about things that we've done bad in the past and that we shouldn't uh, feel bad about things that others have put upon us that were not so great. But I, I personally, in my personal experience, both with my own life and with counseling others, I've never seen anything good come out of rehashing and, and retelling and analyzing and, and seeking recrimination and all this other stuff uh, with the pers a person who may have wronged you. I, and they didn't do that here. They just, they just enjoyed the moment. Uh, they came together. Uh, Esau received his gift. And, and so then Esau says, let's take our journey. Let's go. I'll go before you. In other words, okay, brother, we're together now. Let's, let's, let's go find a place to settle down together. We'll be neighbors. <laughs> Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and the herds which are nursing are with me. And if men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. That sounds a little exaggerated. <laughs> Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant, and I'll lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Seir. Seir would be down in Edom, which is where Esau is, is from now. And Esau said, now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But, but Jacob said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Okay, so he's heading south, back to Edom. And notice what happens here in verse 17. Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. Now, if you look on a map, what's basically happening is Esau's heading south back to Seir. Jacob heads north, the opposite direction. And he crosses the Jordan River. If you look, remember we saw the reference to the Jabbok River. It's a river that feeds into the Jordan. 
and which is it, it's above you know it's it's above where they were considerably, and Sukkoth is on that Jabbok River on the east side of the Jordan River, and that's significant for two reasons. One is that he chooses to go in the opposite direction of his brother. Uh, you cannot get that root of deception out of Jacob. You know, he tells his brother, no, 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 you go ahead. I'll meet you. I'll, I'll be coming as fast as the children and the animals can make it. And then he goes in the other direction. The other reason it's significant is that uh, we saw, uh, we saw that, that uh, God had basically called him to come back to Bethel, where he met the Lord. And he's not doing that yet. He's going back across the east side of the Jordan to Sukkoth. By the way, Sukkoth means booths. And he built booths there or temporary structures for his livestock. Um, and yeah, it tells you that right there in verse 17. And uh, it's, it's estimated that he spent 10 years there in Sukkoth. And rather than going to the place that the Lord had called him to go to, and then we see there in verse 18 that Jacob came safely. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Paddan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city. Now, Shechem is a city in, in what would be considered the land of Canaan, but it was not where the Lord had necessarily directed him to be. So he's still not exactly where God had called him to. And Shechem is a pagan city. It's a city that is populated by Canaanite peoples, and that's going to be a problem when we get into the next chapter. He, he buys a parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohi, which means the God of Israel is a mighty God. Now, as he's done this, uh, he, he's... he's in the, in the land of Canaan, but he's not in the place where the Lord called him. And typically when we get to a place, when we decide to make our place somewhere that's outside of God's will, we open ourselves up to bad influences. We open ourselves up to uh, compromise. Notice how it says that he pitched his tent near Shechem. It echoes the same mistake ultimately that Lot made. When Lot you know, is deciding with Abraham who's going to take what land and he's spying the plain that's out there before Sodom and Gomorrah and it looks like a great grazing ground. And so he went towards Sodom. Then he pitched his tent before Sodom and before you know it, he's in the city and before you know it, he's one of the leaders of the city. And we know what kind of place that was. It's, it's that slippery slope of compromise. And it all begins with going someplace that God has not called you to go to. And we see in this next chapter, this becomes a disaster for, um, for Jacob's family. Now, Dinah, this is verse 1, chapter 34. Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. Now, Dinah is the only daughter that is mentioned by name in the scriptural account that, that is the daughter of, of Leah or Rachel or, or the two concubines. But that doesn't mean that they didn't have other daughters. Uh, she is named because, as we'll see, this narrative very much is, has a profound uh, effect on the family of Jacob. And notice it says that the daughter of Leah, Dinah, she goes out, um, she goes out to, to see the daughters of the land. 
In other words, she's going out unaccompanied into this pagan city. I guess you could say she's going out there to meet friends. I wonder if there are any friends in our neighborhood. I think I'll go find it, find out. What's, what's a little bit odd and maybe even shocking is that she goes out unaccompanied because in the pagan world, in the land of Canaan, and this was one of the major issues that God had with the people of Canaan, this was the reason why ultimately God would instruct his people, Israel, to utterly destroy those people, was because they were desperately wicked. We don't know, the scriptural account doesn't necessarily tell us all of the ways in which God gave them opportunity to move away from the kind of lifestyle that they had adopted. But both secular historians and Bible historians will tell you that the religious practices, the social practices of the peoples that inhabited the land of Canaan were despicable. And promiscuous sex was not only rampant, but it actually was incorporated into the worship of the deities that they venerated. And so, and I got to believe, by the way, that Jacob would know this. They've had enough experience with the land of Canaan. They've had enough experience with the people of the place that they would know how things go there. So the fact that this young lady, Dinah, she's probably a teenager, would be going out to see what she could find, the daughters of the land, um, is reckless and perhaps reckless in the extreme. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. Surprise, surprise. Here comes this fetching young lass and the prince of the country, uh, Shechem, you know, the place is named after him or he's named after the place. And um, he sees her and he takes her. Now, the fact that it's described her here that he violated her uh, certainly, it means that he's having intercourse with a woman that is not his wife. It could also mean that this was a full-on rape situation, that, that perhaps Dinah was not at all uh, a party to this getting together, that she was a victim of it. Uh, we don't know that, by the way, so I, we, I wouldn't want to presume that. Um, but you could imagine how this would go. In fact, there was a presumption. Uh, if you... If a woman was put upon by a man in, the, in, in a city, in a, in a town where there's other people, and this act happened and no one heard her cry out, it would be assumed that she was a party to the thing. If she cries out, even if the man's successful in raping her, it's considered a rape for which he would be severely punished. If they're out in the countryside, which this may have been, then it's presumed that she's raped because even if she did scream, no one would hear her. That's the presumption. And, and the fact that it says here that she was violated, I think, I think it's a safe assumption to say that this man forced himself on her, whether she ultimately said, well, gee, he is a prince, and I do need to be married at some point. And you know, I don't know the thinking there. It's not given to us. But the presumption from her family standpoint is our daughter, our sister has been raped. Verse 3, his soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman 
and spoke kindly to the young woman. Now, we don't know what her reaction was to that speaking kindly to her. Um, and we simply know that this was the wrong way to go about it. And it's really hard in this day and age with, with the, the cultural tsunami of sexual permissiveness that is, that is bashing into the church daily to impress upon young kids that jumping the gun on sexual relations outside of marriage is a major affront to God, which in and of itself is enough reason not to go there. But it's also detrimental to any life in that relationship that goes on after that. Because when young people have sex too soon in their relationship, the sexual side of things gets a life of its own. It now becomes the reason to be together rather than an understanding of that other person to understand whether or not, you know, spiritually we're compatible, we're equally yoked, uh, to understand whether we are compatible just personality-wise, whether we have similar goals in life. Do we want children? Do we not want children? Where do we want to live? Blah, 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 all those things, all those considerations that, that get pushed way back once physical relations enter a, rela a young relationship. It's funny because in India, they still practice arranged marriage. It, it's pretty common there. And, and Monsi Maman, who is the, um, the leader, one of the leaders of our partner there, Peniel Gospel Team, um, he's, he's maybe pushing 40. And, uh, you know, I've had long discussions with him about he and his wife because theirs was an arranged marriage. And he told me the whole story about how this works. Typically, the families know each other or they know of each other. They, they you know, the father of a daughter would be hoping that she would be marrying into a good family. And similarly, the father of a son would, would desire that his son would marry into a, 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 an upstanding family, a family that is well regarded in the community. And so the fathers and mothers would be talking and they would kind of clear the way. It's not like arranged marriage is not forced marriage, at least not in the way it's been described to me. And by the way, the Orthodox Jewish uh, folks in Israel do this too. Uh, when we've stayed at, at uh, the Dan Panorama in Jerusalem and you go down in the lobby, what you'll see is you'll see a lot of young Hasidic Jewish men sitting there with young Jewish women and they're having a discussion. And what that is, is sort of like the opening negotiations of, are we a couple? Would we ever work as a couple? And they literally vet that before they've ever even held hands. And it was the same thing with Muncie and his wife, Jimmy, is that the parents opened the way to say, you guys can talk. And they would talk and they would decide, you know, are our lives compatible? Is what we choose to do, what I choose to do with my life compatible with what you want to choose to do? Um, do we have chemistry here? Not physical chemistry, but personality chemistry. And you know, the incidence of divorce in, in cultures with arranged marriage is significantly lower than in places that are the Wild West like we live in, you know, where, where it can happen in any one of a number of ways. I can say, I don't mean to embarrass you, Bree, but my daughter-in-law, Bree, and my son, Paul, they were 700 miles apart in their courtship. Their communication was letters, phone calls, and texts, and the like. And they knew an awful lot about themselves, each other, before they ever, you know, had much time even in the same room. 
And there's something to be said for that is this, this idea of delayed gratification. Psychologists use something, I don't know if you've ever heard of this before, it's called the marshmallow test. The marshmallow test is they take young kids, this was a study that was done, they took young kids and they brought him into a room and, they, and, they, and they'd sit the kid down and they put one marshmallow in front of him and they'd say, um, you can eat that marshmallow right now or you could wait, I'm going to just leave the room for 15 minutes and when I come back, if that marshmallow is still there, you'll get two. It's called the marshmallow test. And, the, and then they, they studied, okay, for the kids that waited, in other words, they were willing to accept the idea of delayed gratification, and, and therefore the marshmallow was still there, they got two, they were happy with their two. Those kids tended to do better in life. The studies showed that they, they, they tended to achieve better, they got higher test scores, they had less dysfunction in their lives, uh, I think that test has been under scrutiny in recent times, but, but it's kind of an interesting idea to, to tell somebody that if you wait, the reward will be so much better. And this is so much what the Lord tells us through his commands in our life, isn't it? It's like, look, there's a time for that, but it's the Lord's timing, not yours. And when you wait for the Lord's timing, it's wonderful. And, and so this has been taken away from this young woman, that she has not had the opportunity now that one day she would meet a man, it, it, they would come together in a godly way, and they would celebrate that physical union in a way that's both pleasing to God and just wonderful for their relationship. But Shechem's soul was strongly attracted to Diana, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this young woman as a wife. You see that? Now, just based on one physical encounter, he's ready to marry this woman. And, and this tells you a lot about the fact that this guy was not necessarily in love. He was in lust, which is the way a lot of relationships in our modern times are driven and Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. I don't know why we don't read in the next sentence. And therefore he assembled a posse. Let's go get him, boys. But he didn't. Now his sons were with the livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamor and the father of Shechem went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry because he, had, because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. Now understand at that time that brothers actually had a, a responsibility of protection over their sister that equaled or even exceeded the protection that would be offered by the father. The idea being that they are of the same generation as that young girl, and so their protection will, will cover that woman longer even than her father. And so the sons are incensed with the violation of their sister. Conspicuous by its absence in the text is any outrage on Jacob's part. Now, I'm sure he wasn't pleased about this, but we don't see uh, any kind of uh, emphasis on the outrage that Jacob, as the father of Dinah, would have. And so we read verse 8, Hamor spoke with them. 
saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. Now you're seeing how this is shaping up. This is, this is more or less, let's all just interweave here. And this would seem from the standpoint of pragmatism. In other words, if you, if you leave the Lord's commands and the Lord's wishes out of the equation, this would be very pragmatic. We're in a land that's really being occupied by other people, and there's more of them than there's more of us. And, you know, even, even the, uh, the kingdoms of Europe of the 18th and 19th centuries very often intermarried between other kingdoms because that was a way that they believed would ensure peace. And so what, what Hamer's proposing here, again, from just the standpoint of pragmatism, it's like, ah, it's not a bad idea. Now, we know from the New Testament that we are told, as Christians, that we are not to be unequally yoked, right? We're, we're simply not to be uh, taking into our lives people who are spiritually not in the same place we are. Equally, we should not be entering into relationships with unbelievers because ultimately what happens is, and believe me, a lot of Christians do this with the, with the idea, with the notion that, well, of course, if I marry him, he'll, he'll come to the Lord because I'm in his life. And you so wish that would be true. And I'm sure that there are cases where that was true. But the Apostle Paul very clearly instructs not to do that because what is more often true is that the believer that comes into a marriage with an unbeliever ultimately compromises and compromises and compromises their own walk with Christ because their walk with Christ is an irritant to the unsaved spouse. And so in order to keep peace in the home, they will start to dial back their devotion. They'll dial back their study of the word of God. They'll dial back their service of the, to the Lord. And, and it's... It's not something to be done. And that's precisely what is being proposed here uh, by Hamor to Jacob. Verse 10, so, so you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Then Shechem said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. So in other words, name your dowry. I'll pay it. I want this woman for myself. Verse 12, ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me. But give me that young woman as a wife. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. Now, when you see that word deceitfully, you start to realize, hmm, the apples don't fall very far from the tree. You know, they're about to respond to Hamor and Shechem. But we already are clued into the fact that their response is going to have deceit um, impregnated into it. Pardon the pun. And so we read there, um, and so the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father, Hamor his father, and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. And they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. So you see, they've taken the focus off of the fact that their sister has been raped. 
and they put it onto a ceremonial law issue, well, you guys aren't circumcised. We, we can't have our sister going with somebody who's not circumcised. But on this condition, they go on to say, we will consent to you if you will become as we are. If every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you and we will become one people. So you see what, what they're hanging out before Shechem and Hamor. It's like, hey, yeah, we'll totally integrate. You just need to check off the box on this one little ceremonial law issue. Of course, we know, because we've been clued in, this is all a ruse. And then they go on to say, but if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. Now, you might say for grown men to be pleased with this proposal. Uh, maybe they don't understand the practice very well. But the fact of the matter is there were, there were other peoples of that time and in that region of the, of the world that practiced circumcision also. It was not at this time an exclusively Jewish rite. It was something that was practiced by some other peoples in the area. They understood it. And, and they're saying, well, that would be a small price to pay, first of all, to satisfy Shechem's desire for this young woman, and second of all, uh, to have this, this, this union because the family of Jacob by this time is very wealthy, very prosperous. And, and it's almost a misnomer to call them a family. They were probably by this time like a village. I mean, there was families and more families and relatives and servants and whatnot. So this would have been by this time a fairly sizable group of people. So the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of the city saying, hey guys, guess what? <laughs> These men are at our is, are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for indeed the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives. Let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us to be one people, if every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Now get this, because here is the hidden motive of Hamor, expressed to us right here in verse 23. Will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? You see, they're looking forward to, to amalgamating with the wealth of Jacob and his sons that they would be benefiting by their flocks, their herds, their wealth. And so they're saying, look, this, this, is, a, this is not only a good marriage between Shechem and Dinah, this is a good marriage between our people and their people. They're, 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 they're viewing this much the same way that people would view an arranged marriage. That's a prosperous family. That's a, that's a wealthy family. We should want to be associated with that. Surely we'll give our daughters to them. We'll take their daughters to us. Um, and all who went out of the gate of his city, he did Hamor and Shechem, his son. Every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of the, his city. Now here comes the punchline. <laughs> And it, now it came to pass on the third day when, there was, when they were in pain that two of the sons of, Shek, of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed 
all of the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem, Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field and all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives they took captive and they plundered even all that was in the houses. Now this is disgraceful. And they may have even thought that what they were doing was what was pleasing to the Lord and that the Lord was going before them in doing this. And this is terribly wrong. We should never think that we can serve the Lord, that we can help the Lord, that we can honor the Lord through deceit, through lying, through taking of innocent life. This, this was the thing that, that gave Christianity a bad name for hundreds of years, the crusades that were so-called done in the name of the Lord with people carrying crosses and going and plundering villages and killing people, even Jewish people. And, and people in the Middle East have never forgotten that. People around the world have never forgotten that. And they look at, a, the Muslims call us crusaders. That's the way they see Christians. We're a crusaders. Don't talk to us about jihad. You had your turn wiping out people in the Middle East. And these people were doing it in the name of the Lord. And that is the worst misdirection, deception, lie that Satan has ever told people who name the name of Christ as their Lord and Savior. And these men were disgracing the Lord. They were disgracing the Lord. And we see here um, Jacob. Now, finally, Jacob, this is the first time we see Jacob even speaking on the issue here. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, should, they, should he treat our sister like harlot? The dysfunction is going in so many different directions, it's hard to keep up with it here. But the one thing that seems to be evident here is the express concern of Jacob. Is the express concern of Jacob that his daughter was raped? Nope. It's like, guys, you just made me look bad in front of all the people of this land, and now they're going to seek retribution on me. They're going to wipe me out. They're going to take my, my wealth. They're going to take my family. Look what you did to me. That's, that's basically Jacob's take on this. Now, he could, he could certainly chastise his sons for what they did and how they did it, but still be expressed. Because how do you think Dinah would feel in all of this where her father's only complaint in this manner was how, what happened was going to affect him? No comfort to the daughter, no assurance that we'll take care of you, we'll make sure this is right, none of that. Now, ultimately, when, when Jacob is, is in his last days, and he's speaking blessings and, and, and prophesying over his sons. Listen to what he'll say. We'll come to this. This is in uh, 
Genesis 49, verses 5 and 7. Now, he's, he's going down the list of his sons, and he's prophesying over them. And, and all of those prophecies are fascinating because, as you see, the different patriarchs that, that are part of that family, and you know what happens subsequently. Um, you see how those prophecies were right on. But this is what he said about Simeon and Levi. This is Genesis 49, 5 and 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, the interesting way in which that prophecy occurred shows how the Lord can, can work in the midst of chaos and sinfulness. The final line of that is that Jacob speaks a curse over them and, and their punishment is that they'll be scattered in the land. Well, ultimately, this happens to both brothers. In Simeon's case, Simeon's tribe starts to decay very quickly. They are given a portion of the land, but ultimately they just get absorbed into the other tribes. They don't have any cohesion. They don't have any... any um, uh, future as a, a tribe with its own identity. And so they were dispersed and, and kind of folded into the other tribes. Similarly, with Levi, Levi, the people of Levi, ultimately are chosen by the Lord to be the priests. And there's a reason for that we'll come to later. But um, they ultimately are distributed throughout the land. They don't get a possession of land. They don't get a portion of the land. Instead, their portion is the Lord, service of the Lord. And so what they ended up with was certain designated cities where they were located. They were spread throughout the land, and their job was to serve in first the tabernacle, then later the temple. But the idea is that what Jacob prophesies over them ultimately does happen. And, you know, this is... This is a shame, okay? This is an example of how the way in which we live out before our children has a more profound effect on them than we're willing to sometimes notice or acknowledge. But think about these sons, how they saw their father deal with Laban. Now you'd say, well, Laban was a rogue. He deserved everything that Jacob ever did and said to him. Yeah, but, but there were things that, that Jacob did, including sneaking out at night away to get away and and the way in which he promised his brother Esau, yeah, 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 we'll be, we'll be coming right behind you. We'll meet you in Seir and then turn around and go diametrically opposite direction uh, as far away from his brother as he could get. Just all of the deception that was so ingrained in Jacob was lived out before the sons. And ultimately, it became who they were. And this is why they would deal with Shechem and Hamor in a very disreputable way. It's like, yeah, go ahead and get circumcised and then we'll, we'll become one big happy family. And then when these men are writhing in pain on their cots, in comes Simeon and Levi and executes them all. And so, again, the kind of lessons we get from the lives of these people. And this is, by the way, another indication that these writings, these are from the Holy Spirit of God. Human beings don't write about themselves and their ancestors this way. Uh, they, they, you know, if, if mere human beings were writing this story, Jacob would be a hero, Simeon and Levi would be heroes, 
they would have done the right thing. Yeah, go, you show them, you teach them a lesson. No, the Lord is writing this and he's showing these people for who they are. They're people born into a sin nature as we have, prone to do stupid boneheaded things whenever they step outside of the will of God. And that's, that's what we see here. So we'll stop there for tonight. Um, we'll be back in Genesis two weeks from tonight, but next week, as I said, we'll be in that movie, The Pilgrims. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for tonight, Lord. We thank you, oh gosh, Lord, that you preserved this account of just gross ungodliness and stepping outside the will of God that we might be able to see the devastation that occurs whenever we get willful and self-sufficient and seek to help God in our own broken way. And, and so, Father, uh, help us to be cognizant of how we live out our lives before our children and grandchildren, Lord. We need to show them the gospel of Jesus Christ as well as tell them. And that comes from the way in which we live out before them. And so, Father, um, go before all these beautiful people here tonight. Uh, Lord, just impress in their hearts uh, the need that we all stay connected and centered in the will of God. Because the very things we read in this passage, uh, we're prone to those things as well. There's nothing there that's beneath us, Lord, if we are in the flesh. And so, Father, fortify us. Help us, Father to stay close to you, to not let go of the hand of the Savior, even for a moment. Thank you, Jesus, for meeting us here tonight. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.